Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Good day. This is College of Law Dean Mitchell Winnick welcoming you today to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. It is not going to be Stephen Wagner joining me today. Stephen is in trial as as happens when you have a partner who's an active trial attorney, but I am thrilled that I'm joined today by Michael Cohen, our frequent co-host. Michael is an international law partner with Shepard Mullen, the international law firm, and he's also a constitutional law professor at Monterey College of Law. Michael, welcome to the program today. Well, thanks so much, Mitch. It's uh, great to be with you as always. Um, sorry, Stephen. Uh, can't can't be with you this week, but I am also glad that he's in trial and it has uh, opened a window for me to join you. Well, I understand you're joining us today from Washington D.C. I am, we're, and it's very very quiet in the city today because uh, President Trump is in China where he can't tweet because China does not allow. <laughs> this where, uh, uh, people are actually getting something done in government. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk a little about his China trip because you have spoken to us a number of times on this program about international trade and the current administration's approach to international trade. Uh, but but in addition to that, there's just so many things going on for you and I to talk about. I, I, I doubt we'll get them all into one program, but but let's just talk about some of the things that, that we possibly could address today. Of course, we had some earth-shattering news when the special prosecutor indicted Paul Manafort and Rick Gates, uh, Paul Manafort being the former campaign chair of President Trump's campaign, and Rick Gates being on the staff as well. They were indicted by a federal special counsel. So we will talk a little about what, what role, again, does a special counsel have and what does that mean. We have Russian ads on Facebook, and there's concerns about whether the government should be stepping in or whether it's private industries that should step in and limit the access of those foreign uh, actors taking out advertising in U.S. uh, markets. Uh, It certainly seems to me it might start down a slippery slope of talking about the First Amendment. And we've got a giant blockbuster AT&T Time Warner merger, which would be a normal concern about restraint of trade. But it also got mucked up in campaign claims by President Trump that he campaigned to do away with that merger. So again, we have business and politics intersecting. And if we get to it, Michael, we might even talk about Syria joining the Paris Climate climate accord but it's a long lineup where would you like to start <laughs> let's start with treason okay <laughs> i think it's a good place to start because uh, uh out of all of those topics uh, and all of them uh, so interesting and so important uh, uh sometimes it's fundamentally easiest to start with the constitution of the united states of america uh our outline 
for a Republican form of government. And uh, what many people may or may not know, I don't know, uh, is that there is only one crime defined in the Constitution of the United States and one crime uh, whose punishment is also defined and limited. Uh, moreover, that crime is um, defined in the United States in such a way that certain levels of proof are required. And there's an awful lot of talk I have <clears throat> been watching and kind of hearing Mitch listening to and the background and the noise, including from uh, uh, big media and small media and uh, everything in between. Um, uh, uh, and uh, I haven't really heard uh, much about why that clause is in there why the only crime defined in the Constitution is treason. Heard a lot about what it is and what it means, and I uh, don't know that there's consensus on all of that, but uh, I haven't really heard people talk about how it got there and why it's important that it's there, and maybe that might be a good place for us to spend some time. I think that's a great place to start. You know, I've always found it a little ironic that since you point out that the issue about treason in the Constitution, that that Constitution was born out of a uh, transition in government, I guess we should call it, which was a somewhat treasonous departure of a group of then residing on the continent of the United States uh, claiming to be patriots rising up against their home country. That's, abso that's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, they the, at the time that Americans rebelled, right? And, and a rebellion is <laughs> certainly uh, a taking up arms against your government in a knowing and conscious way and a way to break apart from it. At the time the American colonies rebelled, treason had many components. It was a well-established crime. It basically was either a crime against the king, which was high treason, or a crime against some inferior officer of the king, which was called petty treason. And there were also other types of petty treason offenses. Um, but basic, the basic uh, nature of treason was some sort of betrayal against the king or the king's uh, delegated officials. Um, when the Americans rebelled, they did away with all of the underlying inherent philosophical justifications for a king resigning or even exercising power over people and uh, did something that was not only rebellious but revolutionary and starting out a new form of government which started with the words we the people not we the government not we the kings uh, or a new king but we the people and that republic uh, was an experiment indeed Benjamin Franklin was widely quoted when he came out of the Constitutional Convention and somebody approached him and said, Mr. Franklin, on the streets of Philadelphia at the time, what type of government have you given us? And Ben Franklin reportedly said, a republic, if you can keep it. <laughs> if you can keep it. Right. And, and, and he meant something by that. He meant that uh, it's your government, you, the people. It is your responsibility to keep it. And uh, with that obligation comes trust, uh, that you, uh, we must trust in each other. We must trust in ourselves as a nation. We must trust in uh, 
the foundations of the principles of liberty and freedom that we have just established for ourselves and never, never keep those uh, things at a distance, keep them close to our hearts and understand what they mean. Uh, betrayal uh, and trust was the fabric, uh, or trust rather, was the fabric of, of this new government that was founded by people and would reside in people. And betrayal became uh, a fairly you know, big uh, concern. We had had betrayal during the war. Benedict Arnold, of course, in 1780, trying to give up West Point, being the most famous. Um, uh, betrayal was on the mind of, of the framers of the Constitution, and the, the, the treason offense against the nation was largely built in to underscore the point that uh, this republic is based on trust and certain inherent principles of liberty and freedom that are not to be betrayed. Uh, and uh, in that regard, that clause built into the Constitution defines two forms of treason, not all forms of treason. Uh, and those two forms of treason happen to do with waging war against the United States or aiding and comforting its en enemies. Um, uh, and I think that oftentimes we start to think about the what, but not the why. And the why is for us. The why is that this is our republic if we can keep it. And betrayal by government officials, betrayal by those seeking office, betrayal of the nation's systems and processes and fundamental freedoms is a very, very serious matter. Um, it is literally not uh, it, something in the hands of others. It is something in the hands of ourselves. It is, to me, literally the statement Ben Franklin made uh, and the obligation he conferred on us to keep our republic. So, Michael, let me ask you, we've, we've heard you know, bandied about in the various episodes going on in Washington from Paul Manafort to, to Bo Bergdahl, uh, the issue of dealing with, as you said, you know, working against the interests of the country with an enemy. Stephen has many times talked to us about, in criminal law, the difference of active reus, uh, so the active intent uh, of knowing, or a more passive intent of just doing. Where does treason fall in that? So it's, it can't just be working with an outside government, so that's, that doesn't necessarily trigger the concept of an enemy that you've brought up. Uh, how does it fit within these concepts that we've talked about in the law? What, what rises to the level of treason? What are some of the underlying standards that someone would have to, to hit in order to be at least allegedly treason? Sure. Yeah. The constitutional standards are uh, two types of uh, treason, as you kind of already outlined. One is uh, li literally waging war against the United States. That requires you to raise some semblance of, of men taking when men or women taking up arms against uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, for example, uh, early in the nation's history uh, comes to mind. And indeed, um, there were treason prosecutions and subsequent pardons by George Washington. Um, the second type of treason is a lot less defined, and that's aiding and comforting uh, enemies. And uh, 
that does require uh, some sort of knowledge or intent, and the standards vary widely depending on the aid or comfort given. Uh, you know, you, you, if you think about all of the things along the way, you have to know their enemies. You have to understand that your actions are aiding or comforting. Um, wh whether you uh, intend to do that or not is a kind of... Uh, whether you have the specific intent to advance the interests of that other nation or any of those types of things is a far cry from what's likely required. But some sort of knowledge-based intent is likely required, and constitutionally, that must be demonstrated by the live testimony of two witnesses. Uh, and the Constitution literally specifies that requirement from an evidentiary standpoint. Interestingly, the Constitution also prohibits forfeiture as a penalty for treason, and that's also significant in uh, interestingly, uh, uh, interesting ways that, that weave their way into the current indictment of Paul Manafort. So in Manafort's case, we've got Russia as the outside party. Uh, what does it take to define Russia as an enemy under the Constitution? I think Russia would, 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 would clearly fall in line as an enemy. It's not an open war against the United States, but it is uh, a, a nation that routinely demonstrates verbally through its top administrations uh, all the way through down, many, much of its, its culture, uh, great adversity to the United States. Okay. So Russia would qualify, and then in several cases where we had a, a U.S. citizen claiming allegiance to ISIS, and then carrying out or attempting to carry out certain acts, that too would sound like it would trigger the same treason clause. Uh, possibly. Uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult with that kind of uh, terror analysis, if you will, Mitch, because the affiliation, you know, is likely an enemy, but the action is based on the power of religious belief. Uh, I mean, let, let's make no mistake about it. The, these folks aren't trying to advance the interests of a nation. They, the, the, the folks committing those offenses believe religiously that this is their path to heaven. Uh, you know, that, that is what, they, 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 whether that, that's a legitimate belief from the religion or not, I'll leave to others. But there is okay. no Well, let's hold it on that thought because we need to take our first break. And that, that's on that question we'll come back after this break uh, you're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the law this is Mitch Winnick Dean of Monterey College of Law and I'm joined today by my guest co-host Michael Cohen of the international law firm of Shepard Mullen don't go away we'll be back right after this break <laughs> Monterey College of Law is excited to announce that we are opening our third branch law school in Bakersfield. We are Kern County College of Law, and we are an accredited branch of Monterey College of Law. Established 44 years ago, we are now accepting applications for students who will begin in summer of 2017. As with our other branches in Monterey and San Luis Obispo, Kern County College of Law offers convenient evening classes Mondays through Thursdays. At Kern County College of Law, we have a tuition rate guarantee program. 
that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. At Kern County College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Call me, Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Kern County College of Law, 831-582-4000, extension 1012. For more information... This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistants, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Many people believe that law firms are pretty much the same. At Shepard Mullen, we don't. Our law firm believes that what separates us from the pack is not what we do, but how we do it. Aggressive, not conservative. Team players, not one-man bands. Problem solvers, not just legal practitioners. Our clients clearly understand and value this difference. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D. M-U-L-L-I-N dot com. Welcome back. This is Mitch Winnick, the Dean of Monterey College of Law. I'm joined today by Michael Cohen, my co-host. Michael's an international lawyer with the law firm of Shepard Mullen and a constitutional law professor. We've been talking about the crime of treason and how treason is the one crime that's outlined in the Constitution. And Michael, you were, you were talking about, as we went to the break, uh, the difficulty of applying treason, perhaps in the case of a terrorist or an alleged terrorist, because the, the, their motivation could be religious versus aiding and abetting an enemy. And right. that you believe that's a, that's a critical constitutional point. Yeah, I do. And it's also uh, largely often a moot point because that person is doing something that's suicidal. <laughs> so right. <they're> dead <laughs> at the end of it, you know. Um, uh, but it but, brings uh, up the point that there are other crimes that seem to come very close to the same fact patterns that would be that would give rise to an allegation of treason. Because I think you pointed out there have not been very many trials related to treason in the history of the United States. No, I, I really think you can name them. I think there are less than 20. And m- many of the famous spies that we think of, for, ex- for example, which, um, were not prosecuted for treason. They were prosecuted under the Espionage Act, 
which is another statute that our Congress enacted that relates more directly to taking information uh, that is sensitive to national security and selling it or passing it or giving it to somebody outside the United States or really anybody where it could be used against the nation. Uh, so that's the Espionage Act. Uh, early in the nation's history, really, I think by the third Congress, uh, I think Jefferson's administration, the Congress enacted the um, Sedition Act, the Alien and Sedition Act, which had to do with uh, folks who were non-citizens on U.S. soil uh, committing those types of offenses, uh, trying to gather information for use of, by enemies, etc. Et um, uh, so over history, over the history of the nation, and we are, of course, talking about treason defined by the American experience, because treason can mean many different things in many different parts of the world, depending on how those nations culturally experienced this notion of trust and betrayal and have defined it. We're talking about how we have defined that here in the United States. Um, we, we have also defined ancillary offenses that are somewhat short of perhaps the constitutional definition, but still reinforce that basic fabric we talked about earlier, that fabric of trust and the consequence of betrayal to a Republican form of government and what it might mean. And if you, if, you, if you transpose some of this to the Trump administration and the current investigation that's underway, you can see that uh, experience playing out a little bit, particularly in Paul Manafort's indictment. To take a step back, you know, would it be treason if the Trump campaign and President Trump himself knowingly allow the Soviet Union to governmentally and systematically interfere, uh, falsify, uh, uh, or, you know, in other ways, unduly influence the American election? I think there's a strong argument it is. I, I, you know, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think I, anybody would disagree that if one could prove that case, yeah. that that action of allowing a foreign government or aiding and abetting a foreign government to influence a federal election is about as fundamental as we get. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and frankly, if there are people who, who, who think that that is not that big a deal or that, that that's all politics and it shouldn't matter, you know what? You, 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 you really uh, you don't have an ounce in your blood of what this country was founded on because the, 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 the free process and the integrity of an electorate process is the backbone, as you say, Mitch, of everything that we call liberty. It is the literally fundamental step of our Republican form of government. And if you don't think that's important, uh, I encourage you to give up your citizenship and move to an authoritarian nation where you can enjoy the benefits of being told how to think and what to do uh, and, and no longer worry about what other people may want to discuss in, 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 in the uh, public conversation and uh, liberty and freedoms that we have. But if you do, oh, we've even seen it played. We've system. seen it played out just this past two weeks in Saudi Arabia, where you have a king who exercised, as you talked about, this whole thing started with crimes against the king. So you had a king taking action against a dozen uh, supposedly family members who they believed were 
acting against the interest of the country. Sure. And without any of the same protections we have here, uh, those people were jailed, swept off the street, put in jail with an unclear path to a judicial process, if any. Absolutely. Or, Or take the nation, the very modern nation that the president of the United States is visiting right now, China. In China, they just increased the penalty for disrespect of the national flag or anthem to about 10 years in prison. And, uh, you know, in the United States, we have a First Amendment right to uh, voice opposition (laughs) to policies in our government, including uh, through uh, 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 symbolic um, uh, gestures with respect to our, our national symbols. Uh, that's a form of speech, and it is entirely protected. There are so many fundamental things that I feel Americans take for granted. They don't understand where they come from. And this notion that we're just going to say, oh, well, this is all politics or this is all news, that's ridiculous. People need to get on board and understand that our nation and its Republican form of government is the fundamental uh, outline that protects the freedoms that we have enjoyed, those freedoms that were given to us by Ben Franklin and a group of heroes who met in Philadelphia and crafted this document and said to us, it's yours if you can keep it. Well, I think there's a whole lot of people in this country right now that don't understand that or don't even want to keep it, and that's scary. Well, putting that aside, moving back to the point that you had, Mitch, (laughs) getting off my soapbox for a minute, by the way, I think that those are called the pre- President Trump's electoral base, if, if you really want to, you know, um, uh, and, and I invite them wholesale to uh, export themselves to, to another nation where they can form an authoritarian form of government and do what the president wants them to do. That's true. But as long as they stay, they have the right to, to speak that, that opinion, correct? And I, and I hope that they do. I, you know, it, it's, it's contributing to these types of conversations, and I value their ability to do it, and I value their ability to vote, and I value the... Of their ability to express their views. I just happen to not agree with them because they're fundamentally treasonous and uh, in, in that they, they don't want our Republican form of government and they don't want the liberty that we have. And so, you know, to me, I find that dangerous, but I'd rather, I'd rather discuss it than, you know, uh, uh, suffer it. So, sorry, so, sorry, so, so we'll, we'll leave the issue of, of the campaign. Let, let me transition it because this other thing is not being talked, another issue is not being talked about as much as I thought it should which is their investigation about the Russian advertising in particularly social media, but it's, it's media. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm really interested in your take on to what extent do you have concerns? Uh, clearly, that fundamental idea that you, that you raised, which is a foreign government trying to directly influence an American election, is, is problematic. I, no one's going to disagree with that. But on the other hand, oh, you'd be surprised. But let's not let's not say no one. Let's just okay. say seventy percent of the nation is okay. Uh, okay. Probably believes that's the case. But let's talk about when the government starts stepping in to screen and regulate who gets to advertise. When you have it clearly, this political speech that we're talking about regulating, and you've been on this program before to talk to us about how political speech is one of the highest protected levels of speech under the Constitution. So talk, so talk just a little bit about at what path are we going down here? Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's really one of the most fascinating 
uh, I think, one of the most fascinating constitutional law topics confronting, uh, confronting us right now, Mitch. So glad you raised it. So let's back up and, and think about the right the, of freedom of speech, right? <clears throat> Where did this freedom of speech right come from? What is it in the Constitution? Uh, and what are its parameters? And, you know, without going through, that, that could be a, a whole course into itself, right? <laughs> Called the First Amendment. Exactly. Uh, speech. And, and, and it often is. It's certainly a, a core component of our own constitutional law teaching at the Monterey College of Law. But in, in very basic terms, um, speech was important uh, to the uh, American colonists at the time, uh, during the time of the rebellion. And keep in mind, our Constitution was born from rebellion against oppression. And then it, it, it then started to outline a system of government that would protect the freedoms that, ver that a whole lot of people fought a very, very difficult war to obtain. Um, and uh, one of those freedoms was this freedom to speak, this, this freedom to, to communicate, this freedom to express uh, views. It is sort of a, uh, has two dimensions to it. Number one, the, the, the substantive dimension that you mentioned, Mitch, the ability to contribute to this marketplace of ideas, political ideas being the chief reason for that contribution. And so Thomas Paine's famous book, Common Sense, which was uh, 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 viewed by the, the, the king as an uh, instigation to rebellion, but viewed by American colonists as uh, somewhat of a statement of just basic inherent rights that were uh, floating around at the time in French and, and, and some British uh, philosophical ideals. Uh, Thomas Paine had to publish that book anonymously. Anonymous. And, and uh, uh, every, that book was on everybody's mind, the ability to speak about those and contribute those ideas and discuss them and, and to seed them and to, for those ideas to flourish was a fundamental notion uh, underlying the, the nation and its ability to um, uh, move forward in, in an expressive way, by way of ideas. The other dimension of the First Amendment that I feel is not talked about a lot um, is really for uh, people here in the United States, citizens of the United States, residents of the United States, people who are uh, even visiting the United States. All, uh, it applies to all of them. And it's the expression element of the First Amendment. I, I once had a constitutional law professor teach me many years ago, 30-some years ago now, that in some senses the First Amendment exists to protect the lunatic in a park on a soapbox who just wants to shout. Because so we have about two minutes before this break, so I'm going to do to you what I always do to Stephen, which I'm going to launch a question that we'll have to bridge the break on. Okay. But is it the concern? So in the case of the Russian ads in American media, it, it strikes me that if Thomas Paine were a foreigner who came to the United States and published the book Common Sense and distributed it, that that has some parallel idea of a foreign government. Now, it may be the government doing it that becomes the distinction, but a foreign spokesperson coming in and having political speech in the United States. Yep, is yep. it that it's a government that changes the issue, or is it that we don't know who is doing it, or is it that there's some perception of fraud that they're doing it under the color of 
an American speaker. What a brilliant, what a brilliant. <laughs> let's come back to that and let's okay. ask the question whether there's anything wrong with it at all. Okay, that's ex- that will definitely do that. All right, so after this break, we're going to come back. We're talking about issues related to the Constitution and headlines in the national news about law and legal matters. This is Wagner and Winnick in the, on the law. This is Mitchell Winnick. I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law. And in today's discussion, I'm joined by Michael Cohen, a lawyer with the international firm of Shepard Mullen and a constitutional law professor. So don't go away. We'll come back after this break to pick up the conversation. If you've been considering a new career, now is the perfect time to look into the field of law. Whether you're fresh out of school or just thinking about change, the San Luis Obispo College of Law is now accepting applications for 2017 admission. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. San Luis Obispo College of Law's highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evening. The San Luis Obispo College of Law's campus is located at 4119 Broad Street at Tank Farm in Slow. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an informational session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy LaRiviere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. Did you ever wonder, what is the basis of international law? Where would I even go to look up international laws? This is law professor Michael Cohen with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. The United Nations Treaty Collection is an online database that provides information on more than 560 treaties and international legal documents deposited with the United Nations. The database also indicates which countries have signed, ratified, or lodged objections to the treaties. These legal agreements are the basis of international law. They cover topics such as human rights, disarmament, commodities, refugees, the environment, and the law of the sea. Lately, we have heard political candidates making lots of statements about enforcing international law. But if you want to be better informed about the actual laws in place, go to treaties.un.org. That is treaties.un.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law, and today you have Winnick and Cohen on the Law. This is Mitchell Winnick, the Dean of Monterey College of Law, and I'm joined today by Michael Cohen, a constitutional law professor and an international lawyer with the law firm of Shepard Mullen. We've been talking about constitutional crimes, issues related to treason, and now we've moved on to even the more challenging topic of the First Amendment and whether or not the claims that Russian, the, the government of Russia underwrote and paid for ads that, theor- that allegedly were set out to influence the U.S. federal election. So, so Michael, you, right before the break, threw out this idea that, well, maybe there is nothing wrong with it from a constitutional standpoint. So we definitely need to hear more about that. Yeah, let's. I mean, let's just talk about the the Constitution again, right? The First Amendment says there's freedom of speech. It doesn't say there's freedom of speech except, right? That's right. Uh, and, and so what we have had, and 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 some Supreme Court justices over history, most uh, uh, notably probably Justice Black, uh, felt that that was an absolute freedom uh, f- from the expressive element as well as the content element. That there are no exceptions, and that. It's not the Supreme Court's job to come up with these exceptions through the American experience that, uh, that, that redefine the Constitution's free speech right. So on the one hand, there are certainly a set of scholars who could be entirely correct in their view that uh, speech as a freedom in the United States was meant to be absolute and should be unrestricted. But we, of course, have restrictions. And have and, a, we do, uh, and in this case, we do have some restrictions, uh, particularly when you frame it in the terms of election speech, right? Political speech and election speech. You can't speak within certain number of feet of a poll, for example, on election day. You can't right. follow someone in to the room and and continue to talk in their ear. You can't go into the election booth with them and point out what to do. Right. You can't protest the war by burning a flag in Arlington National Cemetery as a soldier is being buried. You know, there's certain things you just, you know, to, to put something that would just be fundamentally repugnant, you know, right. to the family members standing uh, mourning, right, the, the loss of the 18, 19, 20-year-old. Uh, it, it is certain th- so we have in society over our, you know, couple of hundred plus years of existence, defined time, place, and manner restrictions on speech. We have... Uh, define types of speech that can be regulated uh, in in trade. You can't, uh, uh, you know, falsely uh, d- uh, libel or disparage a, a product or a competitor that if 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 it's not true. Um, even in you can't, fa- you can't fraudulently publish claims to sell your product, for example, in, exactly. in commercial speech. Exactly, uh, and we have the you know so the New York Times standard for defamation. You you can criticize a public official, but you can't do it knowing that the report is, is completely false, right? You, you have to have some grounds to, to believe it is, it is true. Um, okay, so let me step back here because this Russian ad brings so many different elements because they're essentially publishing their own speech using the Internet. So they are the publisher. They, they opened the accounts. They had the websites or they created the blogs or however they did it. They created articles that were then picked up by other publishers. But but fundamentally, they were the publisher. So you don't have a case of the New York Times having to screen it. The question has become, well, should 
Google or Facebook or others have screened it as publishers. And doesn't that take us in an entirely different direction? It does. So, does. So, many, so many issues involved there, right? First of all, who's speaking? And where are they speaking? The Constitution protects the freedom of speech here in the borders of America. Is that speech that's occurring on Facebook occurring in America? In part, yeah. In part, it's occurring other places. Uh, perhaps it's, a, it's a, a nation's government speaking abroad. Are they even entitled to First Amendment protection if they're speaking abroad, but through this new technology somehow have a means to reach folks here? There, so there are questions about who's speaking. There are questions about where they're speaking, whether the amendment applies at all. Uh, but he, and, and then there are other mixed questions. Is it commercial speech or is it political speech? It's an ad, as you said, Mitch, uh, but is it an ad? Is it, is it an ad or is it a paid publication? Uh, these new media platforms present all kinds of questions. We heard Facebook's own executive recently testify before the United States Congress and say, we're not a newspaper. We're not a news media organization. We're a big public park where people speak. Right. Uh, well, you know, uh, in part, on the other hand, we've talked about on this show that they are a regulated industry. They exactly. have airwaves and they're being treated somewhat. And we had a whole show on this with you about, well, are, are they more akin to radio, which is a government regulated resource, or are they more akin to free speech on the soapbox sitting out in the park? Yeah, yeah. Or, or in the, in the example you just talked about, Russia publishing. Are, are they a, a publisher <laughs> in America? In other words, uh, uh, are they adding a, a voice? You know, it, it, it's not always clear that you can get your voice out there. And these forms of new media, Twitter included, uh, uh, you know, have um, uh, really, I think, empowered people uh, to speak, to express themselves, and to contribute to conversation and debate in a way that has been historically unprecedented. Um, so what is Russia doing? Are they contributing to that debate? Are they allowed to participate into that debate? Uh, you know, wh uh, where are they speaking? Uh, uh, is this commercial speech? If it's commercial speech, it has to be true. False commercial speech is not protected. This seems more like political speech, you, you know, in, in some senses. Mitch, what's the difference between uh, Russia speaking through this platform uh, versus versus anybody else, uh, you know, if they're if they're here, um, and what would you need to do to make it legal or not legal? Is it uh, are, are we concerned that folks uh, uh, believe the speech is fraudulent in the sense that uh, it's not disclosed that the Russian government is behind it, that it is taking the guise. Uh, of speech and therefore likely to mislead folks and that because it's paid for it's a form of commercial speech there are literally so many issues involved Let me throw another one in that you you almost got to but the who do we want to have regulated if we even want it regulated so on one hand you have the government who in some very specific limited circumstances can step in and say you have violated something, we are going to step in and do and, and impose a penalty, whether it's denying you the speech or actually taking a more active uh, penalty. Or, or do we want it to be a commercial regulation 
where we're going to say to Facebook or Google or the other executives, if you don't impose your own operational rules in a way that protects us, then maybe the government will reconsider its regulation of you. Right. uh, We haven't even come close to deciding, or I think you're right, even discussing fully where do we want the regulation to fall, if at all. And do, yeah, do we want the government regulating content and speech on a platform like Facebook or Twitter or Google Chats or any of the variety of forum that have empowered these voices? I forget who's speaking for a second. Do we want the government regulating speech on these forums? If these are the appropriate time place and manner for speech, if the speech is, you know, regardless of the speech, frankly, if this is the appropriate time, place, and manner for speech, if this is the park where everybody can come uh, and talk and converse, do we want government regulating content? Where does it start? Where does it end? What are the First Amendment parameters there? I actually believe that's a real question. I'm not offended that Russia spoke through a platform about its views of American politics. I, you know, that's, the, that, that's, that's speech. Uh, you know, I, I might not like it. I might not even want to agree with it. Uh, uh, but, but sure, I, you know, I, I am also not uh, uh, at all concerned about engaging in that, uh, that kind of thing. I, I, I think that the concern here, though, that has kind of crept out is that it's part and parcel of something that seems larger, that seems more systematic. It's uh, more something about more government. Akin, right, yeah. something more akin to election fraud right. or election tampering. Right. And, and there would be otherwise apparently benign actions that if packaged in, uh, the, as we say, the, the mens re, the intent to truly uh, change an election outcome, then... then the real question is, do we even have laws that will get us to that? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Again, the Internet, these are new, new questions for a new medium. They are they new are questions. Because and, and it makes me think, I was just thinking for a second. So while you were talking, I try to, uh, sometimes I try to keep it as simple as possible. So if it were a person standing on the sidewalk outside of a voting booth, Right, right, beyond the legal limit, so they're in the, the public space, and they have the proverbial poster that they're standing there with, or handing out flyers that they're doing, and they have the same exact content that we saw published on the internet. Would that be, would we be able to or want to prohibit that in any manner whatsoever? So that's where I, I don't know my answer, but, but I start thinking of that. Then I say, okay, but then you take that and put it at a million polling places. Does that change my mind? Right. And, 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 and does it change your mind who, who's doing it? Right. And, and whether they're a paid person to stand there and do it, does that matter? Right. Um, and yeah. I don't know. We don't have simple answers to these things. Well, we don't. But think about it this way. One thing that has never really not been regulated in um, American First Amendment jurisprudence is who speaks. Mm-hmm. 
right? Where you can speak, when you can speak, uh, the, 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 the truth or falsity of commercial speech. Some of these things have been regulated, but no one's ever said, hey, Mitch Winnick, you can stand at the poll and you can speak, but Michael Cohen, you can't. And isn't that what we're doing right now, <laughs> potentially? I mean, I, I don't know the answer myself, but I think it's a legitimate question to ask. Uh, we, we, we haven't uh, traditionally regulated speech in this country under the First Amendment in some way that is based on who the speaker is. So and I'm thinking, as you said that, so, so, the, so the dictator in North Korea has just responded to President Trump by calling on the American people to impeach and remove him. So it's a, a foreign, a leader of a foreign country, clearly an enemy of the United States, has now published comments calling for the overthrow of our elected president. Um, now, that's he said it in his country, it's reported here, but what if he began buying space in a variety of ways that the Russians did mm -hmm. to go after that message. Yeah, think, think, what if I took out space somewhere where I could advocate for impeachment of the president? I mean, I, I have all kinds of sort of American citizen grounds to do that now. People may agree with me or disagree with me, but I, I could come up with a, a, a good handful of reasons sure, sure. why this president should be impeached. Right, constitutional foundational reasons that you would be able to, to back up. Right, so if I can do that, what if North Korea were to advocate for the same thing and also uh, partake of our own freedom of speech and, and expression and make those same points to us? We're free to reject them or, or accept them. That's right, and then does it matter, looping right back around to the question we started with, does it matter whether we know that's the origin of the stories or not? Right. Does right. it matter? Is right. it speech for, or is it the speaker that we're talking about regulating? That's right. And for that last point, Mitch, it's why I started with Thomas Paine's Common Sense. It was an anonymous publication. Right. That's exactly right. Well, Michael, we have filled another fascinating show. That every single thing we talked about could be its own show. When we come back next time that you're on, we definitely need to come back to the question of international trade. Uh, certainly the president made his international trip to Asia and China to talk about those things. So I hope you'll come back soon and talk to us about that. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. As always, you can hear an archive of today's program on voiceamerica.business channel. As we remind you each week at the end of each show, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. <laughs> I never finished college. I had a baby and it was time for me to do more with my life. I wanted to be an attorney and be able to help people, but I didn't know that I could go to law school without a four-year degree. I decided to go to Monterey College of Law because it's local and I was working full-time and had a child, so quitting work and going to a full-time law school was not really an option for me. Being able to go to school at night and the cost of tuition allowed me to graduate debt-free. Obviously, my income has increased. My schedule is more flexible now, and it does allow me to spend more time with my daughter. My name is Brandi Luis, and I'm an attorney at law. 
Did you dream of becoming a lawyer? You should know that you can apply to Monterey College of Law without a bachelor's degree. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of Monterey College of Law. We're accepting applications now for our spring start. Dream of becoming a lawyer? Do something about it. Find out how at montereylaw.edu. This is Mitch Winnick, co-host of Wagner & Winnick on the Law. We are pleased to welcome Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers and their related Minimus Institute as sponsors of our program. Location shouldn't keep you from the quality surgery you need. MPSC's Destination Surgical Institute features world-class surgeons, concierge assistance, and transparent bundled fees. For more information, go to www.montereysurgerycenter.com. Thank Monterey Peninsula Surgery Centers for state-of-the-art outpatient surgery. Our patients get better faster and get back to doing what they love. Out-of-towners and self-insured employers can now benefit from our quality care through our concierge division, Minimus Institute. Call 831-333-4153 or visit minimusinstitute.com to learn about how we're reducing the cost of surgery by 40 to 60% while delivering state-of-the-art care. Shepard Mullen is a full-service Global 100 law firm with more than 750 lawyers. We handle corporate and technology matters, high-stakes litigation, and complex financial transactions. From our 15 offices in the United States, Europe, and Asia, we offer global solutions and seamless representation to our clients around the world. You might ask, what is the Shepard Mullen difference? The answer is you. Our clients are our focus. Every Shepard Mullen attorney and staff member is issued a plaque listing our client service expectations. We regularly give Clients First awards to attorneys and staff members who go the extra mile for our clients. Client service is not just words, it is part of our culture and permeates everything we do. I am Michael Cohen, a partner in the Antitrust and International Competition Group at Shepard Mullen. I invite you to find out more about our law firm at shepherdmullen.com. That's S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D-M-U-L-L-I-N dot com.